We come into the preaching of God's Word, which is found in Matthew chapter 6 and at verse 13. Matthew 6 and at verse 13. Consider the last petition, and now we come to what is referred to as the conclusion. And so as there is the opening, our Father which art in heaven, and several petitions, now there's the conclusion which we read, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We are mindful and hesitate to spend much time on this, but in some copies of God's Word, such words are stricken from the record. And sometimes there's a footnote that says, the best manuscripts omit these words. Well, that raises a question, doesn't it? Namely, who is it that determines the best manuscripts of God's Word? And who is it that has so determined to strike from the record that which the church has prayed from its earliest days? It's true that there are a very small handful of early manuscripts without this, and yet it's astounding that the overwhelming testimony of manuscripts includes this without hesitation. Each of the Reformers was well aware that there were a handful of manuscripts without this, and yet each of them included this in their catechisms. In other words, it wasn't the advance of the 1800s and so-called higher critical scholarship that discovered that there were some manuscripts without. In Modern, pre-modern days, among the Reformers and early church fathers, they were aware that there were a handful of such texts, and yet they were likewise aware that the Lord had given this His Word. There's a whole need for the consideration of modern so-called critical uh, investigation of sources. We have not time this evening to consider these things, but do wish to stand for every jot and tittle that God has given in His Word. And whereas, interestingly, among the Latins, the Western Church, we find those handful of manuscripts without, in the Greek Church, we find them with. And so, the original language, Greek, has these words in them, whereas early manuscripts that circulated among the Latins was without. Well, we leave the greater investigation of these things today simply noting that we challenge the unbelieving scholarship which has landed upon this striking from the record of God's Word those words which God has given. And it's a striking thing that it takes away not a pleasant sort of tying of a bow upon this blessed provision, but it takes away a grounding of assurance in prayer. Just as it strikes one of the clearest statements of the Trinity from 1 John, so it strikes one of the most blessed comforts in our own approach to God in prayer. And so more to our focus, we realize that there is no confidence in prayer before God who is most holy, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. How can there be when we realize we've sinned, God is holy, and now we're coming to Him with requests, petitions, and appealing to Him 
for kindness. How can we hope to stand before so great a God as He is without the blood of Christ cleansing us from all sin? And yet, even with this, the believer who eyes the blood of Christ feels his inability at times to approach with assurance to express himself with confidence before God. Here is what the Lord provides us in His mercy. In His wisdom, He's given us help. Notice the language. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There's truth to the fact that these are uh, beautiful words. There's truth to the fact that these words give us some degree of a pleasant sense to hear them rehearsed. And yet, it's not the skill of rhetoric that invests these words with such encouragement to our soul. Rather, it's the meaning of these words that gives us great encouragement before the Lord. They come as if to answer an important question. Think of this for a moment. If it were that after your prayer before God, God were to say, why do you seek these things from me? What would you say? Why are you here asking for these things? That would be a challenge, wouldn't it? And yet, there should be a sense in our own consciousness of that question anytime and every time we approach before God. Why am I seeking these things from God? Well, here's the answer so beautifully stated and elsewhere in Scripture articulated. Why do I seek these things? Because yours is the kingdom. Because yours is the power. And because yours is the glory forever. Amen. What's the point? Why do I seek these petitions? Because these things are related to your kingdom. And I'm asking you to grant them. Why do I seek these petitions? Because I don't have power. We don't have power to bring it to pass. But you have power to bring it to pass. And why is it that I seek these things? Because the things that I seek which are in accordance to your word and require your power omnipotent to bring them to pass would redound exclusively to your glory. You see... What Christ provides us is a tremendous focus to instill encouragement as we seek the things that He's given us to seek in prayer. You can think of it this way. As in our prayers, we are directed by God for what we seek. Thus Christ has taught us, and elsewhere throughout the Scriptures, God teaches us. So we found our assurance of our hope upon God alone. Why do I ask these things? As overwhelmingly impossible they are for us to produce, well, that's the reason I ask them. Because, God, You have the power needed. Why do I ask these things which are so despised by the world and at times even the church is ignoring? Because You concern Yourself with them. They're Your kingdom. And why do I seek these things which would do nothing to advance my praise, my glory, my honor? Because they promote Your glory your honor, and your praise forever. 
And so we conclude, Amen. Truly, these things are desired. Let's consider three things looking at each of these parts of this conclusion as we consider reasons for confidence in our prayer. Firstly, confident of our desire. And secondly, confident of our power. And thirdly, confident of our end or goal. So firstly, then, confident of our desire. What is it that we desire in prayer? Well, it's right, we're lifting up our desires. We remember it as we began this series on the Lord's Prayer, that we considered the very expression of the word that's used for pray. When thou prayest, verse 6. Verse 7, when ye pray. And now we're considering, after this manner, verse 9, therefore pray ye. The word pray means to express what we desire. And yet notice, all of these things which summarize for us the various big parts of what we pray, much like the Ten Commandments is the summary of the moral law of God, so the Lord's Prayer is much like a summary of all the variety of petitions that we might have before the Lord. And what does that mean? It means that as we're praying in this manner, we're praying for the things that are pleasing to God. So when we're instructed by God in His Word, and our petitions are conformed to His Word, what does that mean? Our desire is conformed to His revelation. When we pray, as it were, rightly informed by God's Word, and our desires are for the things of God's Word, we're essentially in prayer requesting the things that God has said are important to Him. And what's happening is it's not like a parrot. We read the Word and now we parrot it back. But rather, it's as if by the Word, our own hearts and desires are transformed to say, yes, that's what I want. And then we're brought to request them of the Lord. And now notice, we've already been taught to pray, Thy kingdom come, and likewise Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And yet, all of this prayer is expressive of the Lord's kingdom. His reign. His will. What's His will? It's that these things would be sought. And so, We are confident of our desire because our desire being conformed to His revelation is in accordance to His will. So we're told, of course, that as we pray for those things which are in accordance to His will, if we ask anything according to His will, what? What's the confidence? He hears us. And if He hears us, then we are assured that we have the things that we seek. Brethren, think of that for a moment and ask yourself, is that your confidence in prayer? You see, what happens is we often shift where our confidence rests and we put it on false things or at best secondary things. For instance, we pray and we think, well, that's going to come to pass because I felt such spiritual energy. We shouldn't downplay that in the sense of underestimate the Spirit's work within our souls and giving us clear sight of His promises and the sense of our resting, our hope upon them. But our feelings are not the ground of our 
assurance and confidence before the Lord in prayer. Of course, as we've noted, the fundamental requirement is that we are reconciled to God by the blood of Christ. And yet, as we're reconciled to God, we know by shameful experience that there are times when our desires are not in accordance with what God desires. And we find ourselves, as it were, asking for things that aren't entirely appropriate. Or perhaps, though appropriate, we've lost sight of how fitting and how secure it is for us to come to God and ask for things that seem well beyond, and by the way, everything we ask is well beyond our ability. And yet as we ask them, we start to say, how can I be assured of this? Here's how. We're asking for things according to His will. We read, of course, in 1 Chronicles 29, and we see David both testifying of the greatness of what's being offered, and yet likewise of his own unworthiness so to offer and inability to offer were it not for God providing it. And yet think of why he's doing these things, of gathering this up and seeing Solomon appointed. It's so that this house would be built for what? For His name, for God's name, for God's worship, for God's glory. You see, He's doing these things with great joy and delight and self-sacrifice and confidence because He's doing it according to God's will. Now you think of a king. What does a king do? Well, a king reigns, rules. A king gives commands and guidance. And when it is that the king is good and gives good laws, well, There's no hesitation to say that it's a blessed people who have such a king and who do such things as the king requires. Now, we know history is replete with all manner of wicked kings and wicked rulers. We know that. We don't have to worry about that because the king, which we seek and know, is our Father, which is in heaven, most holy, most good, most righteous, And so it is when we come and we search the Scriptures and we see this is what God promises. This is what God desires. And by His grace, our own hearts are transformed to desire the same things. What are we asking? We're asking for the things of God's kingdom. You know, in sports, there are those who are known as fair-weather fans, right? And there are likewise those who have no real relationship with a sports team. And yet, that team is notorious for its success, and so they cheer them on as jumping on the bandwagon, right? And they feel this thrill because they're on the winning side. Now, whatever that is with sports, however right or wrong and whatever else, we think it all, of course, vain. But we understand why people do that. People want to be involved in something that's winning, right? Brethren, think of this for a moment. Every petition we ask, as in accordance with God's Word, is a petition asked for what God has already said will succeed. Is there not reason for us to be of great encouragement as we ask for the things that are in accordance to His will? This is us being brought unto and being part of the advance of what we know is going to succeed. Think of 
you know, there's a, a blessed view of eschatology, the last things in the Psalter. The Psalter is full of encouragements of what the Lord is going to do. And think for a moment how we have it in Psalm 72, verse 16. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth. Think of that, children, a handful. We think of corn like corn on the cob, but you need to think in terms of like wheat. So a handful of wheat. A handful of wheat in the earth upon the top of mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. This small beginning is cast upon the tops of mountains that will be overwhelmed with like the cedars of Lebanon. And the men of that city, this kingdom, shall flourish as the grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. Verse 19, Blessed be His glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and Amen. This view, the spectacular view of those starting small as a handful, and yet flourishing to a sight that is nearly unimaginable. But is this not what Christ Himself has said? That the kingdom of God is like the grain of a mustard seed? This little thing. Now children, perhaps you've seen chia seeds. These little seeds. And you think, okay, this little thing, how insignificant. Well, similarly, a mustard seed, so insignificant. And yet, as it's planted, it grows to this great shrub and bush and plant in which the birds that would have devoured it now find their habitation in it. And Christ says that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's small. It's almost imperceptible. It's planted. And yet, as God advances, it flourishes. It's like leaven, which is almost imperceptible as well. And yet, a little leaven is put into this lump and it leavens the whole. Right? This is the view of God's kingdom. And every time we're asking in petition for things according to His will, what are we seeking? But what He's revealed is pleasing to Him, and what He's revealed is what He will advance. So the reason for confidence in our desire is not because we desire it earnestly, It's not because we desire things that may be relatively better than others. It's because as we're informed by His Word to desire the things He desires, we desire the things that are intimately connected with Him. Now how is this challenged? We have promises given. And we instantly see, you know, well that seems quite difficult. So for instance, in the book of Romans, we have one such great thing that has not yet happened. And that is the calling of the Jews again to Christ. And so it is with such amazing statement what it shall be when these Jews shall come again to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul in Romans 11 speaks of their casting away And this, verse 15, was to the reconciling of the world, right? So God cut off the Jews and He brings the Gentiles in. Notice this. This is important, both covenantally and uh, with reference to the end times, that there is one covenant people 
and the Jews have been broken off. It's not that God has brought the Jews, and now, well, that's not working out, so he's going to start a new line and carry that on, and then he's going to restart this up and get going as well. No, is there's one people, and the Jews through disbelief, through unbelief, have been broken off. And God has turned to the Gentiles and brought them in. And this vine continues. And it grows. And it's spreading throughout the whole of the world. And one day, in God's great mercy, what is He going to do? Verse 19, there's this question that's raised. The branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Paul says, verse 20, well, that's right. Because of unbelief they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear for If God spare not the natural branches, take heed lest He also spare not thee. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity toward the Jews, toward thee who has believed goodness, if thou continue in His goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in. Notice what's said in verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, this revelation, lest lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Notice there is a temporary breaking off until the fullness comes in and then what shall God do? He'll bring the Jews back. Now, here's the point. Let me ask you for a moment. How much in the past year have you prayed for the Jews to be converted? See? How many times has that been a focus of your prayers. This is just one example of many that we could present. What's the point? We sometimes think we've got it all figured out. We've expanded and exhausted the breadth of all that God desires. And then we start to see, well, there's more. And what has to happen? Well, we have to understand, you know, what's going on here. For instance, this example. And then more than that, if we're going to pray it, we have to be brought to take it up with desire. We're not just parrots. We're not just saying, and God restore the Jews and so on. But this is to be prayer. It's to be something we desire. And what happens is we become confident, not because it seems as it were like it's going to happen, right? It's not because we start to see and say, well, look, you know, the Jews are really turning to Christ. No, that's not why we're assured. That's not why we're confident. We're not confident because look how many people are praying. That's not why we're assured. It's not because it's a day of revival, though we would rejoice in all of these things taking place. The reason we become assured that God will hear and bring to pass these things, whether in our day or in days to come, is because simply and ultimately they're in accordance to His revealed will. And as we ask for things in accordance to His revealed will, we stand assured that it will come to pass. Our desire, when conformed to His revealed will, is a desire with which we express joined in confidence in our prayers. 
So we are confident of our desire for thine, that is God's, is the kingdom. And it's His kingdom we seek. But secondly, we are confident of our power. Sometimes we read of men and women of prayer and we're astounded by the time and the focus and the ability, their expressions. Some have even recorded prayers of some who were quite gifted in this exercise of grace. And we read them and we set down the book and we think, how did men ever pray in such ways? And we don't mean you know, those forms of prayers, though there can be something insightful there, but we rather mean those that were prayed, as it were, on the spot, and someone took it down by shorthand, and we look then at the transcription, we say, Oh God, that I would be made a man or woman of prayer like that. Their prayers were mighty. Their prayers were full. But brethren, this is not what we mean in being confident of our power. The confidence of our power has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. For thine is the kingdom and the power. And how this shifts the hope of our souls. Because it's true, if you, I, yourself, your spouse, this church, this presbytery, this denomination, the Reformed Church, yea, the whole visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this world, and you compare that and contrast it with the multitudes that far outnumber her numbers today, you'll have reason, humanly speaking, to say, this seems in vain. Let's go back to this one example of praying for the conversion of the Jews. Mind you, our own larger catechism includes that as a particular expression for which we pray, Thy kingdom come. We look at that and we we look at the Jews in our own city and region and we say, you know, they're as hard-hearted today as they've been in any day. We look at the various efforts of the past and we say, well, there were like moments, it seems, of men and women coming in, but largely they've remained cut off. And by the way, this is nothing foreign to the Scriptures themselves. Paul himself says, a veil remains over their their face as the Word of God is read. But when the veil will be lifted then it will be that they turn again to the Lord. So we shouldn't be astounded by that, but we use this as an expression of the difficulties that lay before us. We say, you know, we could become deliberate and strategic in our outreach to the Jews, and yet we're fairly confident it would have little impact. Here's the reason for that, which, by the way, suffocates prayer. As soon as we start to think, well, what's the point? our prayers instantly diminish and they become little whispers just out of formality's sake. Well, I know I should be praying this, I'll utter this, but let's be honest, I'm just uttering it. And we hide our thoughts of our conscience from the fact that God sees our false utterance and is looking upon that with disgust. Because remember, we bring to God things that He has taught us to bring. And if we're bringing to God things that He's taught us to bring, we should bring it with earnestness and desire because they're special to God. 
But we should also, as this point reminds us, bring it with the assurance of power. What is our power? It's as we say, Thine is the power. God has the power. Is this not the fact that upheld God's people in times of tremendous affliction recorded in the Scriptures? So you think of occasions when God's people are surrounded and you know, Sanballat comes and he ridicules the people of God and the people of God are talking back to them and they look and they say, you know, there's this great multitude, who can withstand it? And then, of course, they're taught to look to the Lord. Remember Elisha, who's there on one occasion and the, the, the man looks and says, look at this number. What are we going to do? Elisha prays and says, Lord, open his eyes. And then he opens his eyes spiritually and he sees the angels surrounding. And he realizes God's power is incomparable. He has angels, by the way, which are creatures. And one angel is recorded to have put it at thousands of men. What does it mean that he is the Lord God of hosts, angelic hosts? And yet remember this, the one angel is able to overthrow thousands of warriors. Not all the angels can compare to the infinite power of God Himself. They are created instances of given power. God's power infinitely contrasts with all other created power. And so we come, as it were, praying, and yet with assurance expressing, I've not asked anything insofar as in its accordance to your word. Thine is the kingdom. Look at the, the, uh, the um, order of this. The things I ask are in accordance to your word as revealed. They're uh, thy kingdom. And now, in asking that, I've not asked anything that is beyond your power to perform. What's expressed in that, of course, as with any prayer, implicitly even, is that it's not our power that we rest upon. Because so soon as we start to rest our assurance in something being accomplished on our power, we've misstepped and indeed have no hope. But here we're reminded that the things that seem outlandish to the world, and even when first we hear them, they seem outlandish to us, we remind ourselves, well, who after all am I seeking? I'm not seeking a great man. I'm not seeking a great group of men. I'm seeking the Lord God of heaven and earth who has infinite reserves of power, who can accomplish all His holy will. So let's go back to this example. You look at the Jews and you say, I mean, let's be honest. They are embedded in their own way. They have a personal identity and heritage with their own way. They love their own way and their habits and their ways of, uh, of religion are precious to them. They're ingrained in them and all of these things are true. And after all, they've gone through a holocaust, wicked as it was, and they've not turned away from this. What hope do we have? Well, let's be clear. We have no hope in ourselves. We have zero hope in the most earnest and most zealous missionary. But we have all hope in God who is able to accomplish all His holy will. Let's take another one. You think of God's 
will to overthrow false religion. And let's be somewhat you know, fair. When we look around, we see evidence of true religion with compromises. But we do see evidence of out- outright false religion. So we have you know, synagogues, as we've heard. We've had uh, places, uh, mosques, as we know. We have Hindu temples even in our own city. We have uh, uh, non-Trinitarian places of worship. All these things plague our own city. And we look at it and we say, we pass by their parking lots and we say, I mean, their numbers seem to be growing on occasion. What hope do we have? We feel ourselves weak and small. We considered on our day of humiliation that Saturday that just looking at the percentage of people who hold to the truth is overwhelmingly small when compared with the great numbers that refuse the truth. Think of this. We, we thought of this together. There are more people statistically in our nation which avow themselves atheists, agnostics, or nothings, as they categorize themselves with reference to uh, religion. So three out of ten, three out of ten adults in America identify as religiously nothing. Two out of ten identify with any regularity of going to a Protestant church, including liberal Protestants, once at least a month. Now, whatever the others do, you know, they may say I'm Protestant. If they're not going to church once a month, let's be fair and honest. Whatever else they are, they're not Protestants. Two out of ten Protestants go to church per month. Two out of ten American, adult Americans identify in that way. Three out of ten adults in America identify as atheists, agnostics, or nothings. We're in the minority. It does no good to say, well, we've got Roman Catholics. What good is that when they have a false gospel? It does no good to say, well, they're Eastern Orthodox. What good is that? There's no good to say, well, they're Mormons. We start to try and fetch help from things that cannot support our soul's help. How dare we think to instill within our hearts comfort because Mormons stand for moral principles. They are godless heretics worthy of damnation, period, full stop. Nothing more to say. They usurp the Scriptures and they bring people unto hell. Full stop. Ah, but their families are good. What are their families cultivating? Heretical and damnable offenses against God. Period. Well, they stand for family values. I don't want those family values. The Bible doesn't want those family values. The Bible wants people who embrace the true Christ, the Son of God. That's the only thing that matters to us. We can set aside the pretended conservative resurgence. We can set aside the pretended statistics. That may stand for encouragement with some semblance of politics. It does nothing to give us any encouragement of the spiritual advance of God's kingdom. So mark these words. Whoever wins the upcoming election gives us zero assurance of spiritual advance in the things of Christ's kingdom. Full stop. You say, well, what if they profess Christ? Well, let's look at what they often profess. 
And then we'll start to see it's so minimal at best and often egregiously offensive and hypocritical. We have no reason to look at political mechanisms today and say, I've got encouragement that things are going to go well for the church. In fact, we've got the opposite. You say, well, you know, time out. This isn't helpful. The help is in this. We need to remove our false assurance and start to place it squarely where there's true assurance. It is exclusively in the divine ability of God to accomplish His will. Should we be discouraged when we see little signs and encouragements? No. We should say, thank you, Lord, for these things. But were it so that our nation were reformed, if it were so that the Constitution were amended and brought in accordance with the teachings of God's Word, were it so that all of these things took place, it would still be that our full hope is exclusively to rest upon God's power alone. This is why God says to His people, you know, when you're going to enter into the promised land and you're going to have vineyards which you didn't plant, they're going to flourish, you're going to have you know, all sorts of provisions which you didn't build and they're all for you, beware, lest you being puffed up forget God. You see, it's both when we're in our weakness and when we're in our strength that we start to grasp for things that are not able to bring to pass God's will. So Christ teaches us, here's where you put your hope. But wait, Christ, you know, what we're asking is so far beyond what we can expect. From whom is it far for you to expect? From you? Sure. From the church? Yes. From God? No. Because God is all power. Some of you have children or grandchildren. You see them you know, having rebelled against God, and you're right to say, it's beyond my hope. I can't do it. You're right. But it's not beyond the power of God. We look at the scene of the church today and we say, look how riddled it is with all manner of problems. It's beyond our hope. Yes, it is. It's beyond our power. But it's not beyond God's power to bring to pass Reformation today. What do you think Luther would have done if he looked at the world around him and said, I don't have power to do this. Well, he did what would follow. He did look around and say, I don't have power to do it. So what did he do? He prayed. And he became a man of prayer because he knew he didn't have power. He looked to God and said, God, you must bless. Is it not true what what God's Word tells us? Except the Lord do build the house, they that labor, labor in vain. So the point is, as we are brought here to rest our assurance on His power, having brought to Him petitions which are in accordance to His kingdom, we're being assured that the things which we seek are able to be performed because we're asking them of God. Well, lastly, we are confident of our end, our goal. Thine is the power of And likewise, thine is the glory. You can tell a false teacher when they relish 
and the praises heaped upon them. When they, as it were, have their entourage, they love to plaster their faces upon billboards. They love to have all of their ministries named after all of them and have all of these things for them and so on. Versus a faithful minister, however famous, however not. Yet whatever blessings the Lord is pleased to give them, they ascribe all back to God. All glory to God. David, with all of his riches, what is he saying at that moment? Yep, I'm bringing these things, but I'm bringing them all because you've given them. And I acknowledge that all that I'm bringing, as amazing of numbers as it is for us to consider, all is beneath what you deserve. God, I seek your glory. What is our goal in our prayers? Well, there are secondary goals. right? When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're seeking food. But it's like the psalmist says in various occasions in Psalm 119, you know, give me life that I may live and keep your word, right? We seek life in this world, the means to life, in order to serve God. Give me health that I might serve you. Give me life that I might serve you. Deliver me that I might worship you. All of these things we're seeking are ultimately for the believer oriented to the glory of God. Lord, bless the preaching of the Gospel in that city, in this city, in this church, in that church. Why? Well, not so that we can be puffed up and say, look at our denomination, how great it is, how numerous it is, and so on. No. It's so that the Gospel would go forth, convert sinners, who in turn would bring praise to You. Psalm 67, Lord, bless and pity us. Shine on us with Thy face. Well, that seems rather selfish. No. That the nations would know Your saving grace that the people would come to see the advance of Your kingdom and be brought into it. The reason we're seeking Your blessing upon us is that You would use us as an instrument to promote Your praise, Your glory throughout the whole of the world. That's our desire. Why do we want Your kingdom to come? Because then You would receive glory. Why is it we want Your will to be done? Because You would receive glory. But likewise... Why is it we want You to forgive our sins? Because You would receive glory. Why do we want to be kept from temptation to be overcoming the evil one? Because You would receive glory. All of this that we ask is being asked so that You would receive glory. This is our goal in every prayer from the smallest to the greatest. When we pray, Lord, today... Would you give to us food to eat and nourish our bodies? It's to God's glory. When we pray, God, would you convert the Jews? It's for His glory. When we pray, God, would you reform our marriage? It's for His glory. God, would you comfort my soul? It's for His glory. All that we're asking is being asked for His glory. So let me ask you with these three things before us. You pray. And at the end of the prayer, God says, why are you asking me for these things? Are you able to say in your petitions, I'm asking them because they're things that are invested in your kingdom. I'm asking them because I don't have the power. We don't have the power. You have the power. And I'm asking them because they promote your glory. These are the three things when we can say, yes, this is why, we then are filled with encouragement because as overwhelmingly impossible 
as these things are for us to produce, they are entirely simple for God to produce. There's often a question that teachers will present to their students in seminary and then in Sunday schools and so on with young children. It's particularly helpful to ask them, you know, which is more difficult for God to overthrow the host of all the demons or for God to squash one single ant? You know, the children think, like, well, I, you know, it must be more difficult to overthrow the angels that fell. And the answer is no. Neither of them is at all taxing upon the omnipotent God. His power is not lessened if He were to obliterate all the demons at one moment. And it's not more lessened than if He were to squash one ant that is not seen by man. His power is infinite. And so we can come with these things that the world says, you know, that's not going to happen. Well, you know, hold on. Because it's in accordance to God's Word and He has power to perform it. Well, that seems rather, you know, beyond any hope. No, no. God is committed to His glory. And this is for His glory. You see, these things start to assure us. So if we're to pray like this, well, we have to be instructed. We have to be assured that what we're seeking is in fact in accordance to the things of His kingdom. Now, it doesn't mean we have to have a specific verse that identifies this particular circumstance, but the things that we pray ought to be in accordance to the principles and teachings of His Word. And we can do no better than to start with such a guide as this. And take the petitions that we've considered and ask, you know, where in this prayer does my petition fit? So we might, well, how, you know, where does it fit that I'm praying for the conversion of my young child? Or I'm pray, praying for the conversion of my spouse? Or I'm praying for the conversion of this grandchild? Well, here's where it is. Hallowed be thy name. Make your name holy unto them. Thy kingdom come. Let it come to them. And all of a sudden, it's like a burst of fresh air that comes and the clouds part and we say, I'm seeking the things that promote His glory in seeking the conversion of this child. Well, the circumstances are difficult. You know, there's this network of enemies and adverse circumstances that surround it. Well, yeah, that is difficult for you. It's impossible for me. But that's why we're not asking ourselves or asking a pastor we're asking God to do what seems impossible and is impossible for us. So we have to learn how these things fit within His kingdom. And in asking, we must learn to rest all of our hope upon His power to perform. And we must be sure that what we seek is preeminently for His glory. Doesn't this explain why at times our prayers feel somewhat meaningless? We use sometimes expressions like it goes off the ceiling and hits the ground. Well, it may be because as we examine, we find either that we're asking for things that aren't exactly in accordance to the revelation of His will, or that we're asking with some holding on to our own ability to do it. Or, 
that we're asking it for our glory instead of God's. We might ask for the right thing. We might ask relying upon God's power. But if we're asking it for our glory, why would God ever perform it? It would inflate us. It would present within ourselves this thought, now I've arrived. And yet, if we are seeking it for God's glory, then we have much encouragement. Well, brethren, we close. You'll pray this evening. Remember this question. Why do you ask for these things? And let it be that you ask them in the name of Christ because they're things that are attached to His kingdom. May it be that you ask for these things in the name of Christ because His power is alone sufficient to bring it to pass. And may it be that you ask these things because it would promote His glory. And as you do, may it be that with the church throughout the ages, you would be able to say, Amen. So, let it be. Would you stand with me for prayer?